Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel. Last week we started in 1 Samuel, and we had an introduction, and I won't repeat any of that tonight, but let's look at the first seven verses. We're just going to read those quickly, and then we're going to get into verse 8 through the remainder of the chapter. I love uh, Samuel. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible uh, for many reasons. I love uh, King David. I love reading about his life. And certainly uh, the book of Samuel is not just about David. It's about the life and the ministry of Samuel, which we are looking at first and foremost in these first initial chapters. And then we get into the the reign of Saul, uh, Israel's first king. And then we get into King David and his life. And that's really where most of the book is going to focus on is David running from, for his life from Saul, a very jealous king. And we'll see all of the different things that David went through until finally he is coronated king after Saul's death at the very last chapter of this book. And then in uh, the first chapter of Second Samuel, we see David finally, after being on the run for so many years, finally being coronated king in Hebron, where he reigned for seven and a half years, and then he continued his reign um, uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem over the entire nation of Israel. In Hebron, he was seven and a half years just over the tribe of Judah. And then finally he goes to Jerusalem where finally the, all of Israel acknowledges him as their king. And so we look at the beginnings of this very first uh, gentleman that we see on the scene. Samuel is certainly at the forefront of all of this. It speaks of his birth and and the things surrounding his birth, and the things that his parents went through. And we learn of them, and we see Hannah's wonderful declaration, uh, not only in her song of praise to the Lord, but also the, the, the very many difficulties that she encountered during the time that she was married to Elkanah, and the persecution that she endured over Elkanah's other wife, uh, Penina. So we'll see that. But let's read the first seven verses. We'll get right into chapter 8. It says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but notice Hannah had no children. And this man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her and therefore she wept and she did not eat. And this is such an amazing event and it's something I think people can relate to. You know, just seeing how it says twice in these first seven verses that the Lord had closed up Hannah's womb. We don't always understand why God allows these things in our life, but they're they're part of our walk with him. They're part of our growth. 
If everything went really well, very rarely would we grow at all. But it's through the hardships, it's through the difficulty, it's through the tribulations of life. That's really where our faith is really met. It's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. It's where our metal is tested. And God um, reveals himself in so many wonderful ways. And I'm really thankful for times like that because isn't it true that when you have only good days, when things are only going well for you, you have nothing to compare them to, and then all of a sudden, after several good days and you have one bad day, you feel like the, 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 you know, the rug is being pulled out from underneath you. But the fact that you have many good days, I believe, is a very great grace of God. Very few of us see horrible days Most of us, perhaps, many of us. I mean, I guess it's all relative, but we see really good days, and then occasionally we have a really bad day. We have something in our life that rocks our world. And God uses even those things to mold and shape us. He uses those times to really challenge us, because without the challenge, I very rarely would grow. I know that of myself. I I don't grow unless I'm ground to powder, unless I'm challenged in some way that really forces me to find out really what I'm made of. And I don't know what I'm made of until I go through those things. And unfortunately, none of us do. I like to talk a big game. Actually, I don't really talk as much of a big game anymore because I'm more aware of my frailty. I'm more aware of my old man. And so therefore, I don't spend a lot of time boasting about what strength I think I have. I'm more aware of (laughs) how frail I am. But I'm thankful for even when God brings difficulties, because he does, he refines us. It's the only way. Do you understand? So for those of you who are like, you know, I've been a Christian, and all of a sudden all these things have come upon me. Yes, being a Christian is not easy. Anybody who tells you that living a Christian life is a piece of cake is not telling you all the truth, because it is the most blessed time I've ever had. It's the greatest time I've ever had. I've had more joy and more fun since I've known Christ than any other time in my life because there's something about being joyful when you're really free and you know you're free and you can really have fun and you don't have to feel guilty of the fun. Before Christ, every fun I had was riddled with guilt because it wasn't good fun. It may have been fun for a season. The Bible makes no mistake about it. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Otherwise, we wouldn't attract to it like flies to flypaper or a moth to the flame. There's something about the old nature that just gravitates toward that thing that gives us instant pleasure. It could be a relationship with the opposite sex, or it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be the thrill of winning money at the dog track. Whatever it is, it always attracts us. But God has a better plan. He's got a better way. But we notice that Hannah, that God had closed her womb. We don't always understand that. And I love the fact that it says God did. Why would a loving God do such a horrible thing? (laughs) Well, guess what? He was refining Hannah. He was going to do something in her life. Did you ever notice that as we go through the book of Samuel, after this first chapter, actually after the first several verses, we don't hear of Penina's name ever again in the Bible. It's not there. You can look for it. I did. You won't find it. Any of her kids. Does God hate Penina? No, he doesn't hate Penina. He loves her. She had issues, just like we all do. 
doesn't mention their children any longer. We don't hear any more about them. But there's one child from Hannah that we find out about because he would be the one who would not only be the last judge, because remember, we just came out of the book of Judges, this time of great failure and lawlessness, and now we're getting into uh, you know, this, this time where just before the monarchy begins, and Israel's still in a pickle. They still have issues. But yet God closed her womb. He was going to do a work through her. Her son was going to be famous. And isn't it true, sometimes the, the, the greater the work that God wants to do, the greater preparation he has to do in us in order for him to accomplish it? I think that's true. If God's going to do something, if he's going to use your life in some great way, he's going to prepare you. He can't do it any other way. He can't take an unprepared vessel and do something great for them, for they would receive the glory. They would touch the glory. They would think that they had something to do with it. But God has a wonderful way of, of using a person's life and preparing him for whatever that work is. And he cherry-picks those individuals. And is that fair? In today's economy, in today's world, people would say, that's just not fair. Why would God choose Samuel? Why didn't he choose somebody else? Why did God choose Isaac? Why did he choose Jacob? Why did he choose David? And why didn't he choose me? God has a way, and God's plan is perfect. But God chose Hannah. He saw something in her, a humility, and we're going to see that tonight. And we're going to see the great strife that she went through to bear one of the Israel's most significant men in all the Bible. Samuel would also coronate Saul and also the same. He, he would anoint David as king. And what I also think of what a great responsibility and what a great thing that is, I also think about what a great thing it is that Samuel was brought to Eli, the high priest in Shiloh. And the Bible is going to tell us in the second chapter, which we'll get to next week, that Eli and his sons, especially his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they were not um, good men at all. In fact, they were idolaters. They were fornicators. They did some horrible, horrible things. And Eli just kind of turned his back to his sons. He didn't correct them at all. And what a gift Samuel must have been to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, this young boy. Do you know when he got there, he was just weaned as a baby. He was probably five years old or less. After he was weaned, he brought to these gentlemen to serve in the temple or serve in the tabernacle for the rest of his days. That was what Hannah's promise to the Lord was. Can you imagine the influence of this young man who had a heart for the Lord? And it came a point, and we'll see this as we get on, that God began to speak to Samuel, no longer the high priest, Eli. And why is that? Because Eli was not listening he was allowing his sons to continue in their fornication, totally turned a blind eye to what his sons were doing, but yet he saw this young boy who had a heart for him. And God was going to do amazing things through him. And so, so it says that year by year, verse 7 here, that um, they went up to the temple, or the, I keep saying the temple, but I mean the tabernacle, this mobile structure that was just uh, made of animal skins, a very mobile temple, if you will. They call it the tabernacle. And then look at verse 8. It says, Then Elkanah, her husband, 
said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Because remember, she goes up and her rival, it says in verse 6, her rival provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was, year by year, they went up and she provoked her. And so Elkanah finally says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why, why aren't you eating? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And I have to ask the question, Elkanah, where have you been? <laughs> where have you been, Elkanah? Year after year, this has been happening. It's been right under your nose. Haven't you been paying attention, husband? It's interesting that Elkanah seemed to have been oblivious to this contention right under his nose. How could he have been so oblivious to this when there was so much strife in his home? Was it because the ladies, maybe they kept it discreetly between them? Maybe Penina would never do this openly in front of Elkanah. Maybe she was all nice and spice when they were all together at the dinner table. And then when they would go into the kitchen after he was sleeping or, or, or resting in front of the television, Penina would look at Hannah across the room and, get, and, you know, and, and, and chide her. We don't really know, but tension in the house. Was he, was he completely oblivious to it? How could he be oblivious to it? He evidently didn't see it. And men, we need to listen to our wives' hearts as much as we listen to their voices. For had he really listened to her heart, he would have inquired long ago, what's wrong? What's going on? He would know what was going on between her and Penina. He didn't inquire, and he's confounded. Haven't I been to you better than ten sons? Why aren't you eating? What's wrong? Why the long face? But husbands, we need to listen to our wives' hearts. Do you understand? More than their words, or just as much as their words. My wife can tell me things, and I love it when she does, because I'm a thick-headed guy. Most guys are. Anybody thick-headed? Raise your hand. If you're a man, raise your hand, because you've got a thick head. Okay, great. Got that settled. I love that when she communicates with me. That I can understand. Well, sometimes. I shouldn't say that because she can say the same thing over. What? Right? And the, but I need to listen to what she says. I need to be aware of what she says. But more importantly, she can say something. And guys, you know what I mean. If you're married, your wife can say, you can ask her questions. She'll say, okay, honey, it's okay if you go, go do that thing with your friends. It's okay, it's your, your, your only day off. And, uh, but yeah, feel free to go play golf. Yeah, go, go ride your bike with the guys. It's, it's your only day off, and you know, my daughter, your daughter and I have been waiting. But, you know, by all means, go. And, uh, you know, really have a good time. I really pray that you wipe out. I mean, I pray that you have a really great time and that you're strengthened after your surgery. Most wives wouldn't be like that cunning, but... You listen to her heart more than you listen to her words, or just as much as you listen to her words. And evidently, Elkanah was out to lunch. He wasn't really listening to her heart. And yet, the Bible says that he loved Hannah. It doesn't say that about Penina. And there's only one word in the Hebrew, word, in the Hebrew language for love, and it's ahav or ahava. And it encompasses everything, love. The Greek language separated love you know, based on different words, depending on the type of love. In our culture, it's the same thing. We call it love, but in context, we understand what love means. I love my car, but I also love God. Big difference between the two. 
I love my wife, but I also love lobster. You understand there's a difference in context. Same thing in Hebrew. One word. Ahava means love. And he loved Hannah. Why wasn't he paying attention? It wouldn't be right, but I can understand why he wouldn't be aware of what Panina was thinking, what she was going through, because he didn't love her as much, perhaps. But he was very happy because she was the only one who could give him sons. And in that culture, that was a big deal. For a woman not to be bearing children was a sign of God's curse upon you. And so everyone would look down upon you. What's wrong with you, woman? But guys, just because we're the head of the home doesn't mean that we have it all together and we can't learn. We must listen to our wives. Listen to them. The mark of any leader of any kind is humility. If we can't be humbled, if we can't be taught, if we can't learn, there's something really wrong. God doesn't use a man who is just a, a, you know, a Hitler type of personality. He's not going to use a man like that. He's going to use a man who can be teachable, who's humble, who can be corrected. And sometimes the Spirit of God will use our wives when we have stopped listening to him, men. When we have become too big for our britches or when our heads have become too big, God will speak right to us. He, he often does that, and he will use that. He'll do, use any means to get our attention. You recall that when Abraham and, and Sarah, Sarah couldn't have children, so she gets the bright idea of having Abraham go into her handmaid, Hagar, and finally Hagar bears a child. She has Ishmael. And the contention between these two women became so great that finally, it says in Genesis 21, verse 8, the child, Isaac, he grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, all the promises of God were wrapped up not in the child through Hagar, but through Sarah. God had told her that she would bear a son, and it would be through his seed, ultimately, that the kings would come from. And God made great things out of Ishmael and his line. Great kings came out of him, dukes. God didn't just throw them away like some trash. God doesn't do that to anyone. He sees everyone the same. He loves all of his creation. But he has a specific purpose and plan for certain individuals. Doesn't mean that he loves one more than the other. He has right to do that. But notice what happens in verse 9 of that chapter. It says, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, and scoffing. So we see another contention. Isn't polygamy wonderful? <laughs> to see two people in the same house fighting, and, and it always happens. That's why God never uh, sanctioned it. He, he tolerated it, but he didn't say it was a good idea at all. From the very beginning, it was supposed to be male and female, and they too shall be one flesh, and let no man put asunder what God has put together. That was his original plan, but man has other ideas. But notice what happened when she saw the Ishmael scoffing. Therefore, Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very disappointing in Abram's sight because of his son. He really did. He loved Ishmael. From, at this perspective, he thought that this was going to be the heir that God, was to, that God had told him about, but God had a different plan. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. 
And yet, I love this grace of the Lord and I, and for Ishmael. He says, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. But notice, listen to her, Abraham. <laughs> this is another area where Elkanah failed, just like Abraham failed. Do you think when, Ab- when Sarah came to Abraham and says, you know what? God made us this promise, but I'm too old. I can't. I'm past my childbearing years. But look at this cutie over here from Egypt, Hagar. Go into him. I wonder what the inflection of her voice was. And I wonder what would have happened if Abraham was keen enough to say, you know what? Sarah, I know that you would allow me to do this. And I understand why, but I'm not going to do it. Because I'm hearing your words, but your heart is telling me something different. And the Holy Spirit would say amen to that. Sarah made the mistake. Abraham made the mistake. And the result was a mistake. It doesn't mean that God didn't love him. We already saw that. God was going to use Ishmael and do wonderful things to him. And he had a decision to make whether to follow God or resort to evil. And we know what happened. He chose the darker path. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, Husbands, Peter speaking, he says, Husbands, love your wives and dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. And why? That your prayers be not hindered. That means if you don't dwell with your life, don't dwell with your wives with understanding. If you don't give honor to your wife, your prayers may be hindered. Isn't that not what it says? Why should we try and twist it and spiritualize it to mean something else? Dwell with your wives according to understanding. Elkanah wasn't doing that. And this word understanding is gnosis, which means a, a real a knowledge of her. It's where we get our word science from. But notice in verse 9, back in our text, so Hannah rose after, they, after being in Shiloh and And going through the sacrifices, he sees her not eating, distraught. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. Remember, again, this was the tabernacle that was the mobile structure. It was the same thing that Moses had erected in the desert that God had given him very specific directions for. It was a mirror, if you will, of the temple that is in glory, that is in heaven. We've been looking at that in the book of Revelation recently. But this is the tabernacle that Joshua set up in Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. It's the first permanent place it stayed for some time was there in Joshua after it was moved from Gilgal. And, and she was in bitterness, notice, bitterness of soul, and she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. This idea of her being in bitterness was she was very discontented. She was very bitter. She was, it was very, it was heavy, very heavy. And the fact that she wept and she was in anguish, it just means that she was in deep lamentation. She was in deep lamentation. Here she's looking at Penina, you know, the one that, can you imagine the, 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 the horror of the whole thing, really? To be loved by your husband and yet not be able to produce for him the thing that he really desires, and that's to have an heir. And now Penina has beat her, beat her to the punch. Now that her kids are growing up, and she can see the way Elkanah looks at the younger boy. And yet, he, all, the, all the while, he's affirming his love for her, and she just seems to be stymied. She seems to be impotent. 
Can you imagine the, the difficulty of that? And then she begins to doubt even his love, perhaps. Maybe even the love of God. But she was in bitterness of soul, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept in anguish. You know, God always responds to sincere desperation. Have you ever been in this kind of desperation? You're weeping uncontrollably. I tell you what, when you are in a complete straits, when you are at your wit's end, when you have exhausted all, res- all possible resources, when you've called your friends and they've been no help, you've tried everything and nothing helps. <laughs> You're at the end of the end, and finally you look up. God has been waiting there from the very beginning for you to look to him. But it's in desperation that he really shows up. I know this. I've experienced it myself. Having been in desperation a number of times, and many have been in greater desperation than I've ever known, but to be in desperation is a good thing because sometimes God allows it in our life to bring us to him. He allows us to feel that desperation. He hasn't abandoned you, but maybe he's allowed this in your life. Or maybe you've caused it yourself. Maybe because of circumstances and choices that you've made, you find yourself in desperation, and it was your own fault. God had nothing to do with it. He allowed it, and he knew ultimately it was going to lead you to him, which is really the best thing anyway, isn't it? Whether he orchestrated it or whether he allowed the devil to get you into some kind of situation where you finally make a mess of your life, and then you finally wake up in one day like the the prodigal son and say, you know, my father's servants have it much better than I do. At least they can eat some of the pig slop that they're getting, some of the leftovers. I'm going to go back to my father. We will finally wake up. But God always responds to desperation. Notice verse 11. We're going to spend some time in verse 11. There's so much here. Notice it says that she made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, underline this. If you will, underline that phrase, if you will. If you will, indeed, look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. Not just a a child, but a male. I want a son, Lord. And then underline this phrase, then I will. Those two phrases are huge. If you will, then I will. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Notice that God did not require her to make a vow. I believe that God would have given her this child if she simply asked without, pre, you know, without some kind of condition attached to it. Lord, if you give me a son, then I'll do this. She might have just prayed, Lord, would you just give me a son? You know what I'm dealing with here. My husband loves me, but I can't do anything. And Penina is just continually persecuting me, making me feel horrible. Here is the conditional statement that she makes with the Lord. Notice it's a condition. Anytime you have a if-then statement, it is a conditional statement. If you do this, then I'll do this. Or it could be the other way around. God could say, if you do this, then I will do this. Conditional statements are conditional because there's a condition attached to them. And there are conditional statements and unconditional statements in the Bible. The unconditional ones 
are the ones that God makes that don't require anything of any of us. We see it in Genesis chapter 12 when God made the promise to Abraham. He says, the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. Notice the condition. The, um, there's, a, there's not even a condition. It's an unconditional statement. In other words, Abraham, you don't have to do anything about this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm informing you what I'm going to do. FYI in the email. FYI, this is what's happening. I, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's no clause on the end of that saying, but you got to help the old lady across the street. But you got to do this. But you got to do that. you got to be a good boy. If you start messing up again, I'm going to... No, there's no condition. It's unconditional. God said it. This is what I'm going to do. End of topic, period, exclamation point. He does the same thing in Genesis chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am almighty God. Praise the Lord. Aren't you glad that he's almighty God? And he says, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face. God talked to them, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. Between you and me, Abraham. And you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And also... I give to you and your descendants after you the land on which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting covenant possession, and I will be their God. Notice. But this condition of Hannah's was conditional. Lord, if you will give me this, then I will do this. And sometimes... I can't blame Hannah because in desperation, sometimes we make rash vows. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, it says, When you make a vow to the Lord, you shall not delay to repay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone forth from your lips, you shall keep and you perform, for you voluntarily vowed it to the Lord your God, what you have promised with your mouth. In other words, that's why Jesus would say it's better that you don't make a vow. I don't think she needed to make a vow, but in desperation, that's what we do because we'll do anything. Lord, if you will just do this, please, I'll do anything. I remember when I was 21 years old, there was a, a, a 26th annual young artist competition. And I was a, a classical guitar player and I was up against pianists from all around Southwest Florida. And it was a competition, it was a concerto competition. And so I was up against violinists, uh, you name it, every instrument, cellists, violinists, pianists, singers. And I was the only guitarist in the history of the competition to be so brave to enter this thing. So I do. I enter it, play the concerto on the guitar, I end up winning. And I remember beforehand, 
I did. I prayed this. And I, wasn't even, I didn't even know the Lord at the time. And I meant it. But I didn't know what it would mean for me. And I told the Lord, and this is a true story. I said to the Lord, Lord, if you'd allow, it meant a lot to me. I said, if you'd allow me to win this competition, I'll give my heart to you. And guess what? The Lord allowed me to win the competition. But guess what? I went on my merry own way with the cash prize and all that. About four or five years later, about four years later, I didn't know it at the time, but the Lord got his way because he crushed me like a grape. In his love, by his grace, I didn't even remember that until afterwards, after I got saved and I realized how great the Lord was. He, he, he made sure that I followed through on my end of the deal. And here I am. But it was a conditional statement. Lord, if you will do this, then I'll give my heart to you. And I can almost see the Spirit of God, God the Father, going, <laughs> watch this. No one's ever won this competition on the guitar. I mean, the guitar is like a taboo instrument. I mean, you got these long hairs, and these people are like, mm, let's hear this performance. And I did. And won. And I bet the Lord just going, just wait to see what happens next. And then I go my merry own way, committing my fornication, all my adultery, having my own fun after that. And then the Lord has his way, doesn't he? He always has his way. I'm so glad he had his way. And I pray that he's continuing to get his way. But I bring that up because that's a real thing that happens. We make these in desperation when we really want something. We make outlandish promises. We know Jephthah was known for his promise, his rash vow that he made to the Lord. Lord, if you'll give me the, the victory over, these, over the enemy, I'll give you the first thing that comes out of my door. And it's his only, only daughter that comes out. And he's like, oh, why couldn't it have been the dog? Why couldn't it have been Spot? Why did it have to be my beautiful daughter, my only daughter? He makes the vow. In Ecclesiastes 5, it says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to repay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and to not pay. And Jesus even says, you know, in Matthew 5, You've heard it said that it, of, of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstep, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything other than that comes from the evil one. <laughs> but God sometimes uses conditional promises. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see God giving to Israel a conditional promise. And I'll just look at the first three verses of Deuteronomy 28. Shall come to pass, God says, he's speaking to the nation now before they go into the promised land. If you diligently, if, notice, whenever you see an if-then statement, it's a, a conditional statement. If you will diligently, excuse me, obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God, this is what he will do. That the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. I love that. Because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall be you in the country. And he goes on and on and on. A list of blessings. And then he finally gets down to the 15th verse. And then it also says this. But if, there it is. 
But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you this day, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. And actually, it goes on for some time of all the curses. It's quite a bit more than the blessings. These are the things you can look for. Conditions. Conditions. But Hannah makes this conditional statement. She says, finally says to the Lord in verse 11 there, look on the affliction of your handmaid and remember me, Lord. Don't forget me. And I can just imagine the Lord looking down upon this woman and saying, you know what, Hannah, I love you so much. You have no idea. I love Penina too. She's got some issues. But I love you. Didn't, Jer- didn't God say that to Jeremiah when the children of Israel were in In their captivity, he would say, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I believe he's saying that to Hannah at this time. Don't you know I love you? Don't you know I've got a plan for your life? In Isaiah 49, it says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? And not have compassion on the son of her womb. Surely they, they may forget, yet I, I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God cannot forget. He knows what you're going through. And all the strife and the struggle she went through with Penina, feeling downcast. And then she has the audacity to say this statement, If you give me a child, I will give him back to you. Is this not worship? Is this not sacrifice? The one thing that she wanted more than anything else, to be finally accepted of her husband, to no longer have the shame of being a barren woman in that culture. And then she says, if you give me a child, I'll give him right back to you. And I can imagine the Lord just going, I love this woman. Amazing, amazing faith. And amazing worship. You know, I think the Lord gets giddy when something hilarious like this happens, where we really worship. Singing is easy sometimes, but worshiping like this, very, very rare. I'll give him back to you, Lord. It's the only thing I want. My whole existence is based on this. I I want it so bad. And the Lord's just going, you're going to give him back? Notice that the Lord took her up on this. Not only would she grow in her worship of God, but guess what? God would get a man who would perhaps be one of the greatest examples to Eli and his two corrupt sons. Indeed, Israel needed Samuel at this time in its history, a man who had a stellar, a sterling reputation, a heart that was just bent toward God. There was no no changing him. He loved God with all of his heart. He'd, willing, he'd rather do anything. He'd do anything for the Lord. Notice that she said, I will give him to the Lord till the days, all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Basically what she's saying is, I will put place upon him the Nazarite vow, and we won't spend time going into that. But in Numbers chapter 6, it talks about 
what a person who undergoes the Nazarite vow, and I'll just summarize it really quickly. They were to separate themselves from wine and similar drink. They wouldn't drink any beverage that had anything to do with raisins or, or wine or anything related to grapes whatsoever. They wouldn't shave their head, and they wouldn't go near a dead body. They were completely consecrated, set apart, separated unto God. We see that same thing happening with John the Baptist. We saw the same thing with Samson. They took a Nazarite vow. And so Hannah says, I will give him to you, Lord, and he is going to undergo this rite. And it happened as she continued praying, verse 12, before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. So there he is sitting there by the, by the, 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 the doorpost of the tabernacle, and Eli watched her mouth. And now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. And aren't you glad that the Lord hears what you are saying in your heart, even though your voice is not audible? I think sometimes those are the sweetest prayers to God. And we can be ourselves. We don't have to flower it. We don't have to worry about how we sound to God. You don't have to, you don't have to pray in 17th century English. Oh God, thy great, thy great king above, come upon thine humble servant. And blessest thou me with endued power. I can almost see the Lord going, oh, man, I'd rather just somebody said, you know, thanks, Lord. <laughs> Genuine. He sees her moving her mouth, thinking that she's been drinking. And your prayers don't need to be heard out loud for the Lord to hear and answer them. Paul exhorts us to rejoice always, but to pray without ceasing. And everything, give thanks. Do that, folks. Do that. As you're driving your car and you're thanking him for all that he's done, get, have an attitude of thanksgiving. Praise him. Worship him all the time. Pray always. You can keep your eyes open. You don't have to drive your car by faith. You don't have to close your eyes on 490 at rush hour. Keep your eyes open for heaven's sakes. For the love of God, will you keep your eyes open? But pray. <laughs> now Hannah, she spoke in her heart and only her lips moved but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drinking. What an observant guy. Assuming the worst. Maybe it's possible that this is the first time he saw somebody in a really desperate state. Out of all the time that he's been high priest, he's sitting there watching people come in and out, come in and out, just doing their devotion, putting the money in the bag and doing whatever they do and Maybe he hasn't seen someone like this in a long time who was really, truly desperate. And isn't it true? It, it really makes, oftentimes, it's a spectacle. Remember when we were, this last Sunday night, we were talking about Psalm 40, how David says, the Lord put a new song in my heart, even praise to our God, and many will see it, and they will fear, and they will give thanks to the Lord. They will trust in him, and they, they, will, they will see it. Real worship is something that's not just heard. It's, it's seen in the life. And here she is. Her life is being seen. Totally, it's almost like a spotlight from heaven was right upon her. And Eli, in one of his more clear moments, noticed something unusual. So Eli said to her, how long will you drink? Put away your wine from you. Thank you. <laughs> Can you imagine Hannah 
Woman, put away your wine. And I love, you know, so quick to judge her. But Hannah answered, and I love this, her reverence, no, my Lord. I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. If I've drunk anything, it's, it's, it's the sorrows that I've been experiencing, and now I just want to cast my care upon the Lord, for he cares for me. I'm just bringing it all before him. When's the last time you prayed like that? When you're truly desperate, I tell you, these days are pretty desperate. We've been in pretty desperate days. May it provoke us to be a people of prayer. Join us Tuesday night, 7 p.m. We meet for a prayer meeting in the fellowship hall. There's plenty of room. I would love to see all those chairs filled, not because we need to fill the chairs, but just to see the church praying. You can pray at home. There's no problem. Can you come out for 30 minutes? 15 minutes. People come and go. You don't have to stay the whole hour. We usually pray about an hour. Come out and pray with us. She says, Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. And then Eli answered and said to her, Notice this, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. It seems that once Eli made the declaration, even this compromised man, Hannah looked at him, and she heard the voice of God in that man. And what did her faith do? It it, it did something. Notice her reaction. She gets up, she ate, and her face was no longer sad. She says, you know what? That's a good enough answer for me. The high priest told me that whatever my prayer was, and I, I love that, and God says, you know what? Isn't that amazing? God can use a man like Eli who had no discernment and yet spoke a truth to her, and she appropriates it in faith and operates in it and upon it. What a great thing this is. This is huge. This is so like the Lord. Simply believe when God has spoken and then act upon it. I believe with all my heart that this blesses the heart of God when we do this. We simply believe him and his word. It's that simple. There isn't any kind of false pretense. It's just, Lord, I believe, and therefore I believe it. Because faith comes by hearing. She heard, and she believed. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Remember God promising Abram that he would give him a son from his own body in Genesis 15, verse 6. And what does it say? And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. He believed what God had said. It's that simple. I believe what he says. I believe his word. And when you do, you act upon it. And God is blessed when we do. Act upon his word. Act upon what he has spoken to you about. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't try to figure it out. Because the more you try to mess with it, the more you're going to mess it up. Just do what he says. He's able to make all the other things come into, into plan. I remember a woman many years ago went to the, she believed that God had called her to go to the mission field, and so she sets in, she didn't have any money, so she goes, and there's a woman from our church many years ago, I think her name was Peggy Blevins, I think. She goes and she sets, 
She believes God has called her to go. I forget what country she was going to. Africa, I think. She believed it. So she sat in the airport. I forget how long it was. It may have been a day or two. I don't really know. And finally, somebody walks up to her and gives her an envelope full of money, unbeknownst to her. And it's the exact amount she needed to get where she needed to go. She didn't know the person. Can God do that? Yeah, he does. She believed God. And I wonder what, we, what would happen if we did that more often. I believe you, God. I, don't, I can't figure it out. I don't have the money. I don't have the means. But I'm just going to do what you told me to do, what I believed you told me to do. Let him figure that out. He's able. You're not. I'm not. So then they arose early in the morning, and they worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at, at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. This Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. This is just a, a King James version of he had relations with her. And certainly he had physical relations with her before. But notice now the added ingredient to this whole thing. And the Lord remembered her. That's the important part. The fact that Elkanah knew his wife is natural. It's easy to do. The part that they couldn't do was produce a child until God showed up. So Elkanah knew his wife. The Lord remembered her. Remember that any impossible situation plus God becomes a possibility, and more than that, an assurance. Any, poss- any impossible situation plus God becomes a possibility, and more than that, an assurance. How big is your God? Is he impotent? Is he without power? Or is he omnipotent? all-powerful. Make your decisions concerning not what is based upon feelings or without fact. Base it upon the facts that we read in the scripture and ask God for the faith to believe. He's not upset with you praying for faith. He's not even upset for you asking, Lord, give me a greater love for you. Can you imagine going up to your wife after you've been married or maybe even on your wedding day? That'd be fun. Try that, guys. Go up to your wife on the wedding day right after you kiss her now I present to you so-and-so, and they walk down the aisle, and there's rice and flowers flying. Then he gets out to the, the thing, and he goes, you know, honey, I, I really pray that I would just, I would, you know, love you more than I do. What? But see, God is not concerned about that. He knows our frame. He knows we are dust. He knows what we're made of. And in fact, he has all the love. He is love. So it's okay to go to him and say, God, I need more of your love for you too, Lord, but I need love for people. I need love for my own kids and my wife. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah, verse 20, she conceived and she bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. And notice it's true that she asked him from the Lord. It was not some kind of transaction that needed to be made. God is sovereign. Now the man, Elkanah, and all of his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. Notice, underline that, and his vow. What are you talking about? She's the one who made the vow. Turn with me to Numbers 30 quickly. We'll look at this. 
Numbers 30. We're just going to look at the first eight verses of this. I love this. The man Elkanah and all of his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But I only record, I only read that Hannah made the vow, but notice what it says in Numbers 30. It says, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that, she hear, that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. If indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears it, then her vows shall stand and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on that day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered from her lips. So at some point, Elkanah heard the vow of his wife, and he didn't go against it. He said that amen to that. So now, not only her vow, but it's his vow as well. But Hannah did not go up immediately after the child was born, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. You know, and I think about this, because as, she, as he is nursing, as Samuel is nursing on Hannah, Think of how sweet and precious those times are, knowing that she's got just a few years. And then he's gone. She'll see him a couple times a year, perhaps, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. But this one thing that she prayed for, that she's going to give to God, now she's got this alone time. Can you imagine the preciousness of that time that she had, looking in his eyes as he's nursing? knowing very well that this is, this is my golden moment, this is my moment, finally a son, and I'm going to give him to the Lord. I mean, it's a touching thing, an amazing act of worship. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Notice what he says. Only let the Lord establish his word. In other words, they read what we just read. They knew what we just read in Numbers 30. Those first eight verses, Elkanah was very much aware of that, and so was Hannah. And he says, only let the Lord establish his word. And then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls, one ephah flower and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli, who was the high priest at that time. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. And I, I think of how encouraging this must have been for Eli. These words rolled off his lips. Remember what he said to her? He said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. 
And she heard that, and she said, I believe it. She had a son. And now she brings the reward of that. Can you imagine how this all just kind of coming full circle now? There she is with the child. She said, I give him to you. This must have been really encouraging to him because even in his compromise, God allowed him to be a part of pronouncing this blessing upon Hannah. And now here she is with the proof. And also what a blessing and great help and example Samuel would be to him and his two evil sons. Samuel was just what they needed at that time, a man of zeal and great integrity. That's why it's so important that we share our prayers and the answers to prayers with each other. We need to encourage each other that our prayers aren't just hitting the ceiling and of no effect. That's why in our prayer meetings, I often like to start uh, uh, our prayer meetings by saying any answered prayer. We need to hear that. Let's not just, you know, pray to God and then expect nothing to happen. Then why do we, you know, it's important that we talk afterwards, next week, maybe the week following. Whenever God answers that thing, no matter what degree of it is, let's share it with one another. We need to hear what God is doing in your life, what you have prayed. How are we going to be encouraged? We need to be encouraged by these things. That's, how, that's the way the body of Christ is supposed to be. And you know, I think if we did that, we'd be much more thoughtful and we'd be much more excited about prayer. Not that we need to do that, but I think it's really helpful. It really does encourage each other. It encourages us when we hear how God worked. Well, how did he work? What happened? Well, it didn't happen the way I thought it was. It happened some way. I didn't even see it coming, and God just brought this, and, and, and God answered the prayer. Or it may be, you know, God did answer the prayer, and he shot it out of the sky. He didn't let it happen. In fact, I tried to put my hand on it, and I burned myself. It wasn't the time. God didn't want that for you. I prayed for that job, and I tried everything. I, and I made my resume look great. I went to Harvard, and I went to Yale. It did community work. And God didn't allow me to get the job. Therefore, verse 28, we'll end here. Notice she says, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worship the Lord there. And this is a true heart of worship. It's sacrifice. Never forget that true worship is sacrifice. When Kathy and I, back in, I think it was in 2015, we went to Star of Zagora. Was it 2013? I think it was 2015. Uh, we went over there and we did a worship conference at a church in Star of Zagora, which is the capital there in Bulgaria. Or not, not, not the capital, it's Sofia, but it's another city. And... Um, and one of the slides that I put right up in front of the, because I had a PowerPoint thing, and the very first slide was a lamb. It's a, it's a, I forget the name of the uh, painter, but it's, it's just a lamb up on an altar, cute little lamb, and its legs are tied up, both of them. All four legs are tied, and it's just sitting there waiting to be sacrificed. But worship, at the core of it all, is sacrifice. You see it in Abraham when he offered up Isaac, 
And he'd already committed his mind that this was going to be it. Believing that God, if he did follow through, which God had told him to, first he knew that sacrificing a human being is something the pagans did. Why would God ask me to kill my own son? But God, I believe you. You told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. So he gets up there, and as you know, he pulls up that knife, and he's about ready to plunge it in. He says, Abraham, don't do it. There's a ram. Go take him. God will provide himself a sacrifice. Certainly Jesus did. But true sacrifice, true worship is sacrifice. We can't forget that. Oftentimes we give and we do things with our life that's easy, things that are convenient. And I do the same thing, I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to say that I'm some great example because I'm, I'm not. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. But real sacrifice, or real worship is sacrifice. Sometimes I, I'll get my paycheck and I'll see how I do the month. And then at the end, I decide, well, I'll give them. Normally, I would give them, you know, whatever it is. But I spent too much money on pizza and going out to dinner, so I don't have that much left. So I'll give them $5. But you know what the heart of faith says? As soon as I get that paycheck, I'm going to offer, I'm going to give what I should give. And then I'm going to figure out how to work out the rest. And believe me, that's not easy for me to say. And it could be in anything. It's not just in money. It could be in your time, in your life. But see, that's where real worship is, is when we don't know the end. And yet, Hannah gave her son. All she wanted in life was this son. It validated her as a woman. It validated her as a, as a wife. And she said, I'll give him. I'll give him to you, Lord. And the Lord got a great deal. But it goes on, and for in, the, in the second chapter, we'll see in a week or two, in verse 20 it says, And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan which was given to the Lord, and then they will go to their own home. And it says in verse 21 of of 2 Samuel chapter 2, And the Lord visited Hannah. This is after she gave birth. After the act of worship had already been accomplished, she followed through on her end of the deal, and she says, Lord, I give him. And she finally does it. She follows through on her end of the deal. And notice what happens. The Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons. And two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. I love that. It's almost like the Lord saying, you know, I'm not going to be outgiven. I'm not going to be indebted to you, Hannah. You gave to me out of the abundance of your heart, and that was good. It was, it was wonderful. And I bet it made the Lord smile big time. And he says, but I'm going to bless you many times over because of that heart of yours. He blesses her with three sons, two daughters. Can you imagine the smile on that woman's face? Her husband just beaming over her, the one he really loved. Now he's got heirs. He's got heirs, plenty of heirs. He's got one serving in the tabernacle in Shiloh. Wow. What a man. What a guy. What a woman. What a God. (laughs) You know, happy days are here again. Slay the fatted calf. Bring out the... Boston cream donuts and coffee. Let's stand together.
Don't you just love Samuel? I love this part of the scripture, and it gets even greater because we look at, there's just so many things we're going to learn about ourselves, we're going to learn about the Lord, and we're going to see just the formation, the very beginning of the monarchy, and it's such an exciting, exciting time in the history of Israel. So, Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for blessing us tonight, Lord. Help us to, um, Lord, as we've seen the, this awesome worship service that Hannah has done, Lord, may you encourage each one of us, Lord, in our own ways, in, our, in, in whatever way you call us to do, Lord. Help us to remember. Help us not to forsake sacrifice, Lord. I need to remember that, too. And, Lord, may you have your way in each of us, Lord. May we hold nothing back from you. We love you, Father, and we thank you, Jesus, for this time. Pray you'd open our hearts and open our minds and keep us safe, Lord. Keep us healthy and continue to feed us. In Jesus' name, amen.